Okay? So this is one I hope you find kind of interesting, a little bit of show and tell. Everything you need is in your notes. Okay, the notes are far more detailed than I'm able to go over in one night. But uh, I'll begin by telling you about how I'm dressed. Okay? I usually put this on as I explain it to you, but tonight the temperature is really cold, so I just dressed up. And it actually makes a lot of sense, as I'll, as I'll show you in just a second. Um, these items, they all have names. This white thing here, underneath it, it's called an alb. Right? And I don't think this is in your notes. An alb, just from the Latin word for white. Alba means white. And it's a sign of being baptized. Okay? So you see the servers at Mass, they wear albs. Anybody who's baptized can wear an alb. Okay? So on top of the alb goes this item. Okay? This is called a stole. And it's this thing that drapes down. Stole is a symbol of authority. And in this case, it's the symbol of the priesthood. So on top of my baptism goes priesthood. Okay. See this little cord right here? It's called a cincture. And practically speaking, it exists to hold down this floppy stole. But the church kind of gave it a symbolism. It's a symbol of chastity. Okay? And on top of it all is this thing. This is called a chasuble. This is a poncho. This, that's all it is. It's a coat. If we started saying mass now, if the church was founded last week, um, maybe the priest would have sleeves in the future because coats now have sleeves. But in the ancient Roman world, this is a, a coat, basically a big poncho, and they wore it because it was cold, which is why I dressed like this, because it's cold. It's really lousy in the summer, but when you live in northern Europe and you're in a thick walled stone building, you wear your coat, okay? Um, it goes over top of everything, and it is a symbol of charity, because charity goes over top of everything. But you should see more, they'll know we're Christians by our love, right? So baptized, that's my foundation. Priest, that goes on top of being baptized. But over everything else goes charity. And by the way, the word chasuble, it's somehow derived down from Latin, and it means little house. Because this is my little house. Okay, okay um, another interesting thing just for the fun of it are colors. Let's talk about colors, because everybody likes to talk about colors. Um, I need help. Just hold that. Actually, hold that. Okay. Um, green is the color of hope. That's why it's, we use it for ordinary time. Why is green the color of hope? Yeah, times like this, if you haven't lived through several years, who knows? Maybe you'd think nothing will ever grow again, right? Everything just died. Well, green is a sign there's something to hope for. Right? White is a sign of joy. So you wear this for Easter. You wear this for Christmas. It's also a sign of purity. So it's a sign of um, saints who died but didn't die as martyrs. Okay? Purple. This is the color of prayer and penance. And you wear this for the penitential season 
Lent and also for Advent. I could explain Advent. Um, Advent was once a shortened version of Lent, but it's not now. But anyway, prayer and penance, okay? And a lighter color is rose. Everybody says pink, but it's rose, okay? And it's a lighter color of purple, and it's a sign that one of the penitential seasons is about to be over. You only see it two days a year, okay? Then there's red. Red is the color of blood. So you wear this for martyrs. You also wear this for the Holy Spirit, which is symbolized by red because of the fire of Pentecost. Remember we talked about Pentecost in our class on Confirmation? The fire descended on all the apostles. Okay, red for... So those are the colors, and that's just for fun. Okay? Um, But... uh, If I could talk to you about the Mass, I would want to make sure the most important points are covered first, okay? And the most important thing to say about Mass is that it is the reality of Calvary made present right now. That's what we believe it is. You heard the old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Have you heard that before? Mystically speaking, spiritually speaking, we can say, if you've been to Mass... You can answer, yes, I was. Or rather, that the Mass was made a present reality here. Now, do we believe Jesus is crucified again? We do not, okay? That would be cruel, right? We believe, rather, that um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't entirely understand this, the reality of what our Lord did on the cross is made a present reality for us. Um... There's another way of looking at it. It's, it's equally mysterious. And that is that the reality of what our Lord is in heaven is something we mystically enter into right now. All your deceased loved ones, all those who've gone before us in centuries past, they're really there. We're mystically there. Then we have to go back to the real world. Okay? But if you could just understand this, the past event of Calvary is made a present reality. So the Mass is... A sacrifice. You've heard of the sacrifice of the Mass? Calvary is the sacrifice of the Mass. The Mass is... The Calvary is every Mass that has ever been said. Remember when I said there's only one priest in the world? And the priest is Jesus Christ? Okay. Calvary is every Mass that has ever been said. Um, and that is what you participate in. So when you talk about your behavior during Mass, you'd want to ask yourself this question. What would I do if I were present at Calvary? Would I... Would I clap? Would I chew gum? Would I eat snacks? Probably not. Okay? Um, And this really governs the the, the sacredness with which we approach the Mass. It really is the reality of what's going on. Um, That's why you'll see a crucifix front and center. It's why the Mass is called a sacrifice. And you remember what I said about the uh, Passover meal? Where back in the ancient days of the Old Testament, they said... um, you know, you'd offer this lamb of sacrifice, you put the blood over your doorpost, and then you eat the lamb, and you'd be saved. And I said, it's like a New Testament reality where the blood of the lamb, the lamb of God, marks your soul, and you eat his flesh and drink his blood at Mass, and that's your, he's, Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. Well, we say we do, we do that. I knew a Protestant in college, and I told him this. 
And he was really intrigued. Remember I told you about how some people are really intrigued by this? And, he, and, and the next day, it was a Sunday, he went to Mass. And he walked up and got communion. And I told him, you're not supposed to do that. And he goes, I know I wasn't, but that was so cool what you said. I just wanted to figure that just in case you're right, I wanted to, have my, I wanted to cover myself. <laughs> so, so, so he walked up and got communion. Anyway, um, so that's the most important thing that I want to say about Mass. The past event of Calvary has made a present reality. Here's the second most important thing I want to say about Mass. Mass consists of two parts. The liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Okay? Now, practically speaking, that means the readings and the prayers at the altar. Have you ever wondered why we do that? We always have readings and then we have the prayers here at the altar. Let me explain to you why we do that. Okay, go back to the ancient church. And I mean the first years, like 38 AD. I mean, really, really brand new church. Jesus has ascended into heaven. They hadn't stopped going to the synagogue. They weren't entirely sure of the difference between themselves and Judaism. So what they did was they went to the synagogue and they listened to the readings. And they listened to the, 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 the rabbi talk about the readings. And then they all got up and they went to somebody's house where they offered the bread and the wine. If you ever read the uh, Acts of the Apostles, you hear, or, or some of these ancient Christian writings, you'll hear about people gathering at a home for the agape. Have you heard that before? Okay. That was the very first reference to when they would come from the synagogue into somebody's house and they would offer the bread and the wine. And St. Paul writes about it, the, uh, the agape. So why do we have readings and then the altar? Because that's what Christians have been doing from the beginning. It's just that now we do it under the same roof. Okay? So the liturgy of the word, which means readings, and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Okay? So that is what the Mass is. Then you receive communion, which is, as I've said, Christ himself. Remember I talked about your strength, your, your God's grace to help you. And then you're sent out the doors to go live and to make a difference. Let me jump right to the conclusion, the very last line of your notes. When the priest finishes Mass, in English, I always say, go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life, right? In the original, in Latin, they would answer, the priest would say, ite, misa est. Have I said this before? Ite means go. Misa means mission. Est means is. Literally, go. It is a mission. Now, from the word Misa comes our word Mass. And the idea is, you've heard the Word of God, you've been strengthened by the Eucharist, now for the love of God, get out there and act like it. That's your mission. Make sense? That's, if I could give you, the, if, I, if you learn nothing else this evening, know that. All this other stuff, it's trivia. Um, it's not trivia, I think it's kind of interesting, but that's the most important thing, okay? So let's, um, let's begin at the beginning. If I didn't have such a long aisle, I would actually go to the back and begin with a procession. Okay? Mass always begins with a procession. Why? Why don't I just start up here? The procession is symbolic. It's symbolic of passing through to a destination. Are we passing through anything on our way to a destination in this life? What are we passing through? We're passing through this life. What's our destination? Heaven. Procession symbolizes our passage through life. 
Remember what I said about entering into the reality of Christ in heaven? Okay. That's symbolized by what's going on up here. Okay. We're passing through life on our way to, and I think one day, I mean, I don't really know what heaven's going to be like, but it's going to be something like this. Your experience of being with the Lord in heaven is going to be something like your union with him right now during Mass, except that's going to be real, and this is in shadows and, and symbols and mystery. Okay? So, but when we're saying Mass, we are kind of, in a sense, united with all those who've gone before us. So we're passing through. And have you noticed what comes first in a procession? A processional cross. And then you'll see the, the carrying of a book. Right? As we make our way through life, we're led by Christ, our Savior, and our Teacher. That's why it's a cross and a book. Okay? And you get up here, and you see these candles? I'll explain candles to you real briefly. A candle is a symbol of Christ. Um, the reason why it's a symbol of Christ is because it spends itself down to nothing, giving off light and heat. And Christ is the light of the world, and he spent himself down to nothing for the salvation of the world for your sake and for mine. So in Easter time, you're going to see a great big, huge candle that represents the resurrection of Christ. There's another little practical history to candles. Um, when Christians said Mass in the catacombs, it was dark. Nobody had cell phones. They lit candles. Okay? Um, but understand, a candle always represents Christ. And that is why we have candles up here. Okay. So the priest comes on up here. And he kisses the altar. What a strange thing to do. Why does he kiss the altar? The reason why he kisses the altar, well, think for a second about a kiss. You shouldn't have to stretch your imagination too far to know that a kiss is, well, classically speaking, it's a spousal thing. It's a sign of union, right, between a love and a beloved. The priest represents Christ. The altar, I hope I'm not throwing too much at you, but hopefully some of this will stick. The altar is the place of sacrifice. And the union between God and his people happened by what? By Christ's sacrifice. Okay? So what you're actually seeing with a kiss is a sign of a, a bride and a groom. Christ is the groom. The church, his people, are somehow, I don't entirely understand it, the bride. And I think I mentioned this before, the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. Did I mention that? It ends in a great big wedding. The union of God and his people, the bride, the, the, uh, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. If you look through the book of Revelation, you'll see that. The union that God brought about by means of sacrifice, the altar, is a union between God and his people that's like a spousal union. In fact, I don't want to get too far afield here, but everything that we believe about marriage, it's not like we're saying that... Um, God is kind of like how we understand a marriage, but rather the opposite. How we understand a marriage is kind of like what God one day will do to us. And the marriage is a symbol of that. That's why he kisses the altar. Okay? And then the priest says, the Lord be with you. And you say, and with your spirit. And that comes, those, that, those lines come from St. Paul. 
But if you count, there's five times in the Mass the priest says that. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. Five times. And what's interesting about that is, I'll just let you guess, how many times did Jesus greet his apostles after he rose from the dead? Five times. Okay, so it's a symbol of the resurrected Christ speaking to his people. Okay? The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Uh, a deeper understanding of that is, I'm recognizing the presence of Christ in the gathered assembly. Remember where I said, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm present among you? I'm recognizing that. And when you respond, you're recognizing that Christ is present in the person of the priest. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. That's what that means. Now, the very first thing that we do, what do we do after we, after we have that greeting? We call to mind our sins. Okay? We recognize that we're not worthy to be here. That none of us has any business walking up to the foot of the cross on Calvary. Because we are not good, sinful. Everybody, priest and people, every, we all stop and say, okay, we, let's admit it. None of us are really worthy to be here. So let's confess our sins. And we have a little examination of conscience. Let us call to mind our sins. I confess. And, then, and you say the, the, whole, um, the whole, it's called the penitential rite. In the ancient church, remember what I talked about the history of confession? This is when people would stand up and say what they did. <laughs> okay. Um, we don't do that anymore, thank goodness. But it's still a prayer of forgiveness. Now, uh, when I say Mass, I always say Kyrie eleison. Have you noticed? What language is that? It's Greek. People think it's Latin. There was a past parish I was in, and someone called up to complain about the use of Latin in the Mass. And they said, you're so backward, why do you use Latin? And I didn't answer the phone. That was the pastor who says, oh, we're far more backward than you think. We also use Greek. <laughs> why, why, why Greek? I'll tell you why. It's because Greek was the original language of the church. Before there was Latin, we spoke Greek. Okay. The New Testament written in Greek. So when I say Kyrie eleison, I'm saying in the exact same words what Christians have been saying since the days of the apostles. There's every reason to believe that the apostles, when celebrating Mass, would have said, Kyrie eleison, it means Lord have mercy. And I could, I could get into the etymology of it. It's really interesting. It also means God come and help me. It's another way of reading it. But part of the reason I say it is because when I say it, I'm saying, God come and help me. Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Okay. Um, so immediately call to mind our sins. Then on Sunday we say the Gloria. It's explained in your notes. A prayer of praise and thanks to God for what he's done for us, especially for the forgiveness of sins. So far, so good? Okay. Now comes a really important part that I don't think people understand. When the priest says, let us pray, and he opens up his arms, and he says this prayer called a collect. What's actually going on there is that the priest is praying on behalf of all the people for all the intentions they have in their hearts. So what that means is when you come to Mass, you want to have those intentions in your mind and in your heart. It's called the, the opening prayer. It's called the collect. And it's spelled collect. And the reason why it's spelled collect is because I'm collecting everything that's on your mind and your heart. And in Christ's name, I'm praying to God for you. That's what the priest does. So uh, the priest will say, let us pray. And he'll pause. During that pause, stop and think about what's on your mind and heart. Offer it to God with the priest and through the priest. 
together with him and also through him at that moment. Okay? And you'll notice when the priest says the collect, the, uh, the words kind of gather together all that we're... Here's an example. O God, who know that because of human frailty we cannot stand firm amid such great dangers, grant us health in mind and body that we might that what we suffer for our sins, we might overcome with your help. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. I'm collecting all your prayers and intentions, okay? And the one interesting thing about that that you might find kind of interesting is what I do with my hands. You ever notice I go like that? I'd like to explain why I'm doing this. This is called the Oran's position. Who knows Latin? Nobody? Okay. Orans is the Latin word for praying. That's all it is. If we all spoke English in the church throughout history, I would have called it the praying position. Orans means praying. That's all it means. What I'd like to understand is whenever the priest prays like this, it means that he's praying on behalf of all the people to God. That's what the priest is doing. Remember when we talked about the priesthood, I said he's a mediator between God and man who brings about a union between God and man by means of sacrifice? When you see the priest praying with his arms out like this, that's what's going on. Now let me explain this to you. You might find this kind of interesting. What do I look like when I'm doing this? I look like the cross, right? When did Jesus bring about a union between God and man by means of sacrifice? When he opened his arms on the cross. That's why I do what I do. Now, the history of it is kind of interesting, I think. If you go back to the days of the Jewish temple, there was an Oran's position that the Jewish priests offered in the temple. It's just that it looked like this. He made a pillar. Believe it or not, if you could time machine with me back to you know, 60 BC or whatever like that, go to the Jewish temple, put on our yarmulke, and walk into the temple and watch the priest pray on behalf of the people. He'd make himself into a little pillar, a little column, hands straight up. Why hands straight up? Because he's uniting God and man by means of his prayer. How is God and man united by means of prayer in our understanding right now? By means of the cross. That's why the priest prays with his arms out like that. Got it? Okay. So that's the Oran's position, and he offers the prayer on behalf of you. Now we all sit down and listen to the readings. Okay? What do we call this part in Mass? We call it the Liturgy of the Word. Okay. Now, uh, There's three readings at Mass and a psalm response, okay? And it, goes, and, it goes like, and it goes like this. The first reading is usually from the Old Testament, okay? The second reading is usually from the New Testament, and the gospel is always the gospel. If you come to daily Mass, there's only one reading in a psalm response. But um, I hope this isn't too complicated, but we have a three-year cycle of readings, Year A, year B, and year C. Year A, you read Matthew. Year B, you read Mark. Year C, you read Luke. What gospel did I leave out? What year do you read John? Every year. So year A is Mark and John. Year B is, uh, so year A is Matthew and John. Year B is Mark and John. Year C is Luke and John. Who knows what year we're in right now? Who knows? We're in year See, you'll be hearing from the Gospel of Luke all year long. Okay. Um, and the Old Testament and New Testament, they cycle around so that if you go to Mass every day for three years, 
you'll basically hear the entire Bible read. Not every single line, but pretty darn close, right? Most things are read. Uh, so we got the Old Testament, New Testament. Everybody understand that? Get both Testaments represented there. Gospel, because it's the most important. It's the story of Christ. You know the difference between a gospel and the rest of the Bible, right? The gospels tell us the story of the life of Jesus. You're not going to hear that anywhere other than a gospel. Um, psalm response. Why do we have a psalm response? What a strange thing. Let me tell you. The psalms are prayers. What's a prayer? A prayer is words you say to God. Read the psalms and you'll notice every single psalm are words addressed to God. Ever told you about the psalms before? Okay, I think you'll find this interesting. There's 150 psalms. Psalm 1 begins by saying, there are two ways you can go in this life. There's the way of the just and there's the way of the wicked. The way of the just leads to the Lord and the way of the wicked leads to doom. So as for me, I choose the way of the just. That's basically a summary of Psalm 1. Now as the Psalms progress, the Psalm writer begins to recognize that those who follow the way of the Lord often suffer. And those who follow the way of evil, boy, they sure do prosper. And he turns to God and he's like, hey God, what gives? Why do the people who break your laws make all the money? Why do the people who ignore your laws get all the promotions? I'm sitting here trying to observe your laws and all I'm getting is lashes on my back and jail time. And What gives, Lord? And then he gets really sad. And he goes, oh man, this following the Jesus, this, not Jesus, following the Lord business, oh man, nothing but, nothing but hardship, nothing but pain and difficulty. And he almost quits. Psalm 72, you should read it. And then he has a breakthrough. The breakthrough is that all the things of the world pass away and the blessings of the Lord last forever. The blessings of the world, in the end, don't really have any value. They come to nothing. You have to surrender them at death. The blessings of the Lord are true peace. true. And then his whole demeanor begins to change. He begins to praise the Lord more. And he begins to be more faithful. And he complains less. And he's less bitter. And he's less sad. Until you get the last psalm, Psalm 150. Pure praise. That's all it is. Praise the Lord in the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all you angels. Praise him. Let everything that has life and breath praise, praise the Lord. Now, you could say that the whole story of the psalms is the story of our spiritual life. Think about it. When you begin as a little child, you're told, do good and be a good boy and be a good girl and God will bless you. And then you grow up and you realize, hey, wait a minute. The people who break the rules are the ones who get ahead. And then you've got a decision to make. You're going to break the rules, you're going to keep them. Um, if you keep them, you do kind of turn to God and say, hey, God, what gives? But if you persevere and persist, you'll come to realize that God and his grace and his blessings is the only thing that have any value in life. And the last psalm, Psalm 150, it's like, it's like, it's like what it's like for the, for the souls in heaven. Nothing but praise. Nothing but praise for God. That's why we include a psalm, because it's really, really great prayer. Um, and that, that's basically what the psalm response is. So you always include a psalm. Okay, so far so good? Okay. Now, uh, after the gospel comes the homily. And I wish everyone in the world could give a homily. I really do then you'd know how hard it is. It's really, really hard. Here's what a homily is supposed to be. It's supposed to take something from the readings 
and show you why it matters to you today. Okay, so you got these old readings, Old Testaments written 3,000 years ago, halfway around the world. It's talking about foreign things like rams and bullocks. And, and you think, what does this have to do with me today? Well, that's part of the job of the priest for the homily, right? He can't explain everything. We'd be here all year. But something, first reading, second reading, gospel, something, he's got to, to try to make it clear to you. It's very hard to do. You want to know why it's hard to do? Because you've got a limited amount of time. You've got a vast audience of people. Some are old. Some are young. Some are young who wish they were old. Many are old who wish they were young. You got married. You got single. You got single people who wish they were married. And you got married people who wish they were single. Okay? You got everything <laughs> under the sun. And you've got a very short amount of time to try to make some sense out of it while babies are screaming and while people are running around fidgeting for seats and taking bathroom breaks and you're trying to keep your concentration. It's very hard to do on readings that everyone's heard before about 20 or 30 times. So I wish everybody could... But So anyway, have mercy on your homilist. It's a very, very, very hard thing to do. Okay, uh, But if you can get anything out of it, just count it a blessing. Not every homily is going to be good. But if you can get one thing out of a homily, that's, you, you've done your job for the day. Okay? So the priest gives the homily. Um, after the homily, he gets up here and he, and he says the creed. Let's talk about the creed for just a moment. Okay? And he says, let us stand now and profess our faith. And then you read this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I've been saying this every day not every day, every week for 21 years and I still have to read it off a card. You want to know why? Because there are certain things that you can always do perfectly in the privacy of your own office but the moment you stand before people you can't remember what to say next. It happens all the time. So I always read it because I will screw up if I don't read it. Um, but why do we read this? Why do we say let us profess our faith? Let me just tell you an interesting little history of this. It used to be in the ancient church that if you hadn't made your first communion yet, if you hadn't been baptized yet, if you, hadn't, if you hadn't made your first communion yet, that after the readings, you got up and left. You weren't even supposed to stay. Today you stay. But it used to be that you actually got up and left the church. Mass was over for you when the readings and the homily were over. A lot of you might think that's a pretty attractive idea. Okay? Um, but there were people who were in the pews who proclaim, who proclaim that they were Christians, but they actually weren't Christians. There was an ancient belief called Gnosticism. Has anyone ever heard of Gnosticism? Okay. Gnostic, I'll just very, very briefly. It was a different religion, but it passed itself off as Christianity. Okay. It, it proclaimed itself to be, but it wasn't Christianity. It was a very, very, very different belief. Just make a long story short, the thought matter was bad and spirit was good. Do we believe that matter is bad? We do not. Jesus became a man, right? I mean, matter can't be bad. Um, they believed that you were a spirit trapped in a body and that your purpose of your life was to set your spirit free from your body so you could move up to a higher plane of existence. That's not us. <laughs> we believe you are body and spirit together. Your body is not an accident. It's a real part of you. So to differentiate between those who believed and those who didn't believe, there came a point where for the sake of discipline, we decided to proclaim 
what we believe. And it was like, look, if this isn't you, get up and leave. This is who we are. Now, we don't really have that problem anymore. So now it's kind of a summary statement of faith. That's why it's included. Okay. Then comes the petitions. And we pray for the church, and we pray for the government, and we pray for local needs, all kinds of things. Pray for the deceased. And who reads the petitions usually? Do you remember at Mass? It's usually the... It's usually the deacon. Here's why. In the ancient church, the deacon used to be out among the people, distributing the alms, uh, and he would be the one who would know the needs of the people best, so he would stand up and read the petitions. Today, I write the petitions, but the deacon still reads them. So then come, so, so all that, that I just got finished saying, that's all the liturgy of the word. That's whole thing's liturgy of the word. And by the way, just to satisfy your curiosity, if you come to Mass so late that you haven't heard a reading, you haven't really gone to Mass. Because you have to at least heard a reading to say that you heard the liturgy of the word. So think of like Mass, liturgy of the word, and liturgy of the Eucharist. What does it take to make chocolate milk? You need milk and you need chocolate. You don't have chocolate milk unless you got both ingredients. You don't have mass unless you got both ingredients, okay? There's a real simple one you probably never forget. So he said mass was chocolate milk, but I don't understand what he was talking about. So anyway, I hope that makes sense. Okay. Now comes something else that's really weird, and I hope this makes sense. There comes this offertory. There comes this offertory. And they offer up wine, and bread. Why do they offer up wine and bread? Well, once upon a time, people made their own bread, and they made their own wine. And what they made with their lives, they put up on this altar, and it was turned into the Eucharist, right? People don't make bread unless they're hobbyists. People don't make wine unless they're hobbyists now. Um, But the symbolism of it remains the same. When you see the offertory processed through the sanctuary, processed through through the aisle, you're supposed to take what you have done in your life, your work, your studies, your anything it might be, and put them right up there on that altar. Give it to the Lord. Let him make good out of it. That's why we have an offertory. Okay? It's, it's a time for you to think, my work, at home, school, whatever it might be, I'm offering that to the Lord as though it was the work of my own hands. Now, the priest will say this um, when, he, when he offers this. say, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we've received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It'll become for us the bread of life. Or fruit of the vine and work of human hands, it'll become our spiritual drink. Okay? So that's something you want to keep in mind when you see the offertory. Unite your life to what happens up here on this altar. Your pains, your sufferings, your everything. Okay? Another reason why we have an offertory just to make a... It's very, very complicated. I'm giving you the simplest of quickest summaries. Remember what I said about Gnosticism? 
Remember what I said when they said that matter was bad? Part of the reason why we process it up the aisle is because in the ancient church, with all those Gnostics out there who thought matter was bad, we were processing material stuff through the church as a way of saying, no, matter is not bad. It's very, very good. In fact, everybody look as we bring it up now and turn it into the body and blood of Christ. That's why we have an offertory. Okay? So what the priest does now is he offers all of this up here at the altar. And I think what I'm going to ask you to do is come up because you'll, you'll need to see this to get it. Okay? I want you to see all of this and gather around. Um, because all this stuff has a, a meaning. So come on around back here so you can see me. Okay. All this stuff has a meaning. We start with this cloth right here. And this is called a corporal. Corporal from the Latin word corpus meaning body. And what this thing, look at how, it, look how it's folded. Look at how it's folded. It's folded such that everything folds in. And there's a reason for that. It's because if any piece of the Eucharist by a flake or anything like that, were to fall on this, it's all going to get trapped and collected. Let me just real quickly say something about the Eucharist. Let's pretend like this piece of bread right now is the Eucharist. Question for you. If I break it, is it still the Eucharist? Yes, it is. If I break it again, is it still the Eucharist? Yes, it is. How small can I break it and it's still the Eucharist? Answer, as small as you can possibly see it and recognize it for what it is. So if a small little piece of this were to fall, would it be the Eucharist? It would. That's why we care about little pieces. You see, lots of things priest does at Mass. It's actually caring. Can I tell a little story? In the Royal Canadian Mint in Ottawa, the floor is black because they purify gold. Why would they have a black floor in a room where they purify gold? Because every piece of gold has great value. You don't want to lose even a flake of it. Okay? So we don't, we're concerned about the Eucharist in just that same way. We don't want to lose even a flake of it. So here's this cloth called a corporal. And you take this cloth here. This is called a chalice veil. And it covers everything because holy things are veiled. And this cloth here, it's called a pall. P-A-L-L not P-A-U-L, P-A-L-L. And this keeps out flies. That's what it does. And in the summer, you'd be amazed, little fruit flies, they smell this, they make a beeline for it, I keep them out. Okay? That's why I have the pole. Um, this is called a purificator, this cloth, and it's used to clean the inside of the chalice, which is what this is. Okay. Um, yeah, you might as well stay here so you can see this. So the priest will bless the bread and then he will take the chalice and he will put the wine in the chalice. Okay. And he will take a tiny little drop of water and put it in. Have you noticed that? The tiniest droplet. Why a tiny drop? Here's why. Because the water represents you and me. The wine represents Christ. If I put a tiny little drop of him in there, can you ever separate them again? You can never, ever separate them again. It's been completely absorbed and made one. The idea being 
That's what happens to you when you receive the Lord in the Eucharist. You're united to him. It's just as impossible as trying to get the water back out of the wine. That's why he puts... When I was an altar boy many, many long years ago, every single priest, I would be the one who poured the water. He would always want the tiniest little drop. And I'm like, boy, that guy's really picky. He must not like diluted wine. Well, now I know why they do it that way. And then the priest blesses the wine. Okay? And I mean, all this is in your notes, some of this stuff. But I can't explain it. A little bow. And then he washes his hands. And he says a prayer. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Symbolically, make me pure to offer this sacrifice here at the altar. Now, practically speaking, it had a practical origin, which you probably don't need to guess or think about too hard to guess. He wanted to have clean hands, right? Maybe he'd been working in the fields. Maybe he's got dirt under his fingernails. He wanted to have clean... So he washed his hands. Okay. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours... When arms go out like this, what's, what's the priest doing? He's praying on your behalf. Okay. So the whole Eucharistic prayer, he's got his arms out like this. And you can talk about all the elements of the Eucharistic prayer. That's where... The priest consecrates the bread and, and the wine. Uh, he prays for the church. He prays for the people. He prays for the living. He prays for the deceased. The most important part of Mass is this. It's when the priest takes the host and he bows down slightly and he says the following words that I can't say right now because if I did, we'd have Mass. But you can say them. Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which we will be given up for you. And then you hold up the host. Okay? And you hold up the host. I hold it up so that people can pray. This is the moment of transubstantiation. That's why I hold it up. That's why the altar server rings the bells. It's like people are saying, hey, sleepyheads, pay attention. This is the most important part of Mass. What's the most important part of Mass? When the priest holds up the host, and I should also say the same thing for the chalice, exact same thing. How many consecrations are there at Mass? Two. This is the consecration of the host. This is the consecration of the chalice. What's a consecration? Consecration, the moment in which we would say transubstantiation takes place, the moment in which the host becomes the Eucharist, we call it a consecration. Okay? And it happens twice. The other one, somebody read it for me because I can't say it. Come back and read this for me. Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which we poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. And then he holds up the chalice, and that's the consecration. That's why they ring the bells. Got it? The most important part of Mass is that. Why is that the most important part of Mass? Because the most important thing in Mass is the Eucharist, transubstantiation, the presence of the Lord. That's the most important thing in all Mass right there. Okay? So I'm trying to emphasize the most important points. Um, We're almost out of time, and as you can see, um, there's a lot that I could go on. Oh, I'm an expert. I'm a professional (laughs) at seeing that. Um, I got it now. Okay, so afterwards we say the Our Father, okay. because we've always said the Our Father. Is the Our Father the most important part of Mass? No. It is not. You'll be amazed how many people think it is. Far more important than saying the Our Father is receiving the Eucharist. 
Eucharist. And even if you don't receive the Eucharist, praying in the presence of the Eucharist, okay? Now comes a really important part of Mass. Um, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Let us offer each other a sign of peace. Do you know why we do this? It's, it's about burying the hatchet if you've had a fight. How many people come to Mass and they had a fight in the car, they had a fight last night? I'd say two-thirds, right? Maybe. It's just, I mean, I grew up in a family. I didn't drop down out of the sky one day and wear a collar. And I know you're driving across town and you're elbowing your brother in the back seat of the car and your mother's like, I'll turn this car around. Right? I'll stop this car. Um, or whatever shit is that you're, that's what my mom would say, at least. Um, and then you come into Mass and it's grump, 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 angry, I hate you, um, all this. Well, you're supposed to bury the hatchet before you receive Jesus. Is that so hard to understand? That's why we do it. <coughs> so, what you really need to do <coughs> at that moment is reach over and offer them a sign of peace and mean it. Okay? So that's what you want to try to do. If, it's, if you don't have anybody to bury the hatchet with, great. It's like I offer the sign of peace to the deacon and also to the altar service. I've got no gripes with any of them. Um, so, but you know, it's not like social hour. It's not, oh, I love your shoes, or whatever it might be. Oh, boy, you're wearing the loveliest eyeshadow, or whatever it might be. Um, that's not, it's about burying the hatchet, God. It's actually a very important part of Mass. Here's, here's one of my favorite lines in the scriptures. And Jesus said, if you go to approach the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, stop. Go make peace with your brother first. What I like about that is, if you come to, Jesus doesn't say, if you've got something against your brother. He says, if your brother has something against you, if somebody's got a gripe against you, stop and go make peace. In other words, you take the initiative. Don't wait for them to take the initiative. You take the initiative and go make peace, okay? So we offer each other the sign of peace, and then we come forward and we receive communion. Now, we'll practice this later, but there's two ways of receiving communion. You can receive it on the tongue. And it's really adhesive, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to touch your tongue, I promise. If everyone's like, I don't want to receive it on the tongue, you can put your finger in my mouth. Believe me, nobody wants to stay further away from your mouth than me, okay? Um, so I don't even have to get near you. Watch this. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> now, if you receive on the hand, it's the other way to do it. The hand you write with should be underneath. Right? The hand you write with should be underneath. You, and we'll, we'll practice this. And then you come and you take the host and you receive it. But please don't ask the priest to defy gravity. You'd be amazed how many people receive like this or like this or just flat, okay? Just gravity, okay? Just cooperate. And if you receive on the tongue, you got to give the poor guy some real estate to work with. <laughs> don't come up and like, like this. <laughs> give me some, give me, give me some something to work with here. Uh, go ahead and go ahead and stick your tongue out at me, right? That's now's your chance. Uh, where's that? Okay. So you come up and you receive communion, and then the priest purifies all of this. I'm just going to pour this back here and reuse this tomorrow. The priest purifies all this up here. Okay. Because look at this. See how there's still. 
that's still the Eucharist in there. It doesn't look like much, but there's still the Eucharist in there. If I break one of these hosts, you have a little tiny flake. Look, you can see a couple little flakes in there. That's all. So what the priest will do is he'll take this purificator and he will take all those little pieces. He'll make sure there's no little pieces left over. Put them on in here and he will clean up. Even say a little prayer. Lord, may I receive these gifts in purity of heart. May they bring me healing and strength now and forever. Tiny little prayer the priest says. And then he'll clean this out. And this purificator will be washed separately. It won't be thrown into the laundry. Because that, if this were Eucharist, which it isn't, it would have stains of what is, well, the body and blood of Christ. Okay, So we treat this separately and it's washed there's a separate sink back there called a sacrarium, and it goes straight into the ground. It doesn't go into the sewage system. Right? We, we put that. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, or you, you can soak it in water, and then you can put the soaking water into the sacrarium. But we won't put it back into the sewage system. Okay? So we'll clean this all up here, and quickie short here, I'll just put this back together real quick. Um, and we'll put the chalice veil back on. Now, all these details are in your notes with much, much more detail than I have time to go over here in class. You see how this is all trapped? All little pieces are trapped? Then we'll pause for a moment and we'll say a prayer after communion that basically says, now let's go make a difference based on what we've done, okay? Increase your love within us, Lord, by the saving mysteries we have celebrated and bring your people everywhere to respect your gift of human life. Christ our Lord. Amen. It's basically what we've done, what we've heard, Lord help us to put it into practice. And then he'll say, the Lord be with you, one last time, give you a blessing, and say, ite misa est. That's the Latin. In English, um, let us pray, go forth glorifying the Lord by your life. But the original Latin, go, it is a mission. Ite misa est. And you try to remember that, in the parking lot, okay? um, at least. <laughs> you try to at least get that far. So that's the shortest of all uh, little looks at the Mass right there.